0: So the split symbolized by the Onondaga hardened, and racial politics became as natural to Steelton as breathing polluted air. In the last six years, Stella had won every case but one. It was this which had led a courtroom deputy to give her a nickname which now enjoyed wide currency among the criminal defense bar, the Dark Lady. But only recently had they become aware of her ambition, long nurtured, to become the first woman-elected prosecutor of Erie County. Though this was a daunting task, it was by no means impossible. Stella was a daughter of the West Side, a young woman her neighborhood was proud of, an honor student who had worked through college and law school, had remained an observant Catholic, had not turned her back on Steelton and its problems, as had so many of her generation, had already become head of her office's homicide unit. Stella was articulate truthful, and genuinely concerned with making her office and her city better. She was attractive enough without being threatening to other women, with a tangle of thick brown hair, pale skin, a broad face with a cleft chin, and somewhat exotic brown eyes, a hint of eurasia, which Stella privately considered her best feature, a sturdy build which she managed to keep trim through relentless exercise and attention to diet, yet another facet of the self-discipline which had been hammered into her at home and school. And if there were no husband or children to soften the image of an all-business prosecutor, or, Stella thought ruefully, her deepening sense of solitude, at least there was no one to object, or to say, as Armand Mars might, had he not lost the gifts of memory and reason, that she was reaching above herself. But her biggest problem, Stella knew, was not that she was a woman. She was a white ethnic with no base on the black east side. And with that, her thoughts and her gaze moved to the most hopeful, most problematic aspect of the cityscape before her, the steel skeleton of the baseball stadium Mayor Krejcik had labeled Steelton 2000. It was not the first improvement in this vista. The lake and river were cleaner, the air less polluted, if only because the mills had declined. The one seedy downtown area, formerly the preserve of prostitutes and muggers, now featured shops, theaters, and restaurants, which were slowly drawing suburbanites and young people. Some new glass office towers had kept clean industry from leaving. But it was the stadium-to-be, which, for Stella and many others, symbolized the battle for the soul of their city. The Steelton Blues baseball team dated back to 1901. The Blues were part of the city's fabric, a voice on the radio, an argument in a bar, a conversation between a father and son who might have little else to talk about. But in recent years, a poor record brought attendance down, the franchise was depressed in value, and the spoiled superstars who were baseball's princes could demand far more money to play in better media markets. Peter Hall, the heartless steel baron's great-grandson and current owner of the Blues, had threatened to sell the team to a group from Silicon Valley who could move the team to California. But, just as Hall did not relish being vilified as the callous owner who sold the blues, Thomas Krejcik, the young and ambitious mayor of Steelton who had risen from Stella's own neighborhood, was determined not to be the once promising politician who had let Steelton's identity be sold to a pack of computer chip millionaires. Krejcik and Hall had sold their vision of Steelton 2000 in a hard-fought, special election, to float $275 worth of municipal bonds. Now the upshot rose, skeletal against the featureless gray canvas of Lake Erie, the ghost of a ballpark, its steel girders in place, the cement which would encircle it taking shape in stages, its timeless geometry imposed on bare earth. In 2000, when the Blues took to the field, the spirit of Steelton would be reborn, or so Mayor Krejcik promised, and Stella wished to believe. And this, Stella knew, was her biggest problem of all. Krejcik was up for re-election this November, but first he faced a bitter Democratic primary. That this was inevitable, stemmed from the race of Krejcik's opponent, Arthur Bright, and one of Bright's principal contentions that Steelton 2000 was a shameful diversion of public financing. Bright was the first African-American ever elected prosecutor of Erie County, and it was he who made Stella his head of homicide. She owed him loyalty. More important, she admired him. And her political future depended on his. The prosecutor's office would be vacant only if Bright defeated Krejcik. Stella could win election only if Bright supported her among the East Side voters who were his base. In either case, much depended on whether Bright could persuade voters to take a second, harsher look at Mayor Krechek and his field of dreams. It was this thought which, finally, drove Stella from her brooding inspection of Steelton 2000 and back to her desk. She saw the usual mess, a coffee cup with cold, half-bitter dregs, her gym bag, Status reports on homicide cases, police files. But squarely facing her was the one document so delicate that she had discussed it with Bright himself. The police report on the death, four days earlier, of Tommy Fielding. Fielding's maid had found his body in the bedroom of his townhouse, naked, next to a dead black prostitute named Tina Welch. His kitchen sink contained the primitive chemistry set, lighter, spoon, cotton balls, glassine baggie with a white residue of powder, used to cook heroin. The police lab could find no fingerprints on these implements and no prints traceable to Welch anywhere. The initial police canvas of the neighborhood turned up no one who knew Fielding well, but no one who had imagined him using heroin or hookers. His former wife, the mother of his only child, had, according to the police, been too shocked to be coherent. Nor did his status in life square with the meanness of his death. Fielding had been Peter Hall's lieutenant, an officer of Hall Development Company and the project supervisor for Steelton 2000. I suppose, Bright had said in a sardonic voice right after he had told her she must be the one to handle the case, it's a welcome example of racial amity. Hands across the Onondaga. Black Hooker teaches white executive to shoot up. How will that play in Lashava, Stella? Stella did not have to answer. Bright knew that most of her parents' generation and many in her own were so mired in bias that Tommy Fielding's death would merely buttress their suspicion of all blacks. Never mind that Arthur Bright had devoted much of his professional life to a relentless fight against drugs, tougher enforcement, stiffer sentences, more education, better treatment facilities, all was lost in the neighborhood's deepest fear that, should Bright become mayor, the blacks would take over Steelton for good. Finally, Stella replied, You could get some votes there, Arthur, if you could make them see past race. What they see, Bright answered wearily, is just another black man, the predator they cross the street to avoid. He leaned forward in his chair, restless. I'd run stronger in a dress. White voters can cast black women in a nurturing role, like cook or nanny or housekeeper, at least if they're older and fatter than Tina Welch, sort of like Mammy and Gone with the Wind. I can find you the dress, Stella rejoined, but you'd better start eating. Her tone grew sharper. You've been fighting this for years now. Why all the self-pity? Bright frowned at Stella's tile floor. He was wiry, smooth-faced much younger looking than his fifty years, and wire-rimmed glasses gave him a scholarly appearance. Poles, he said bluntly. I've got ninety percent support on the east side, less than sixteen on the west side, and stuck there. He looked up at Stella. So how's your campaign? You've been very decorous, I'd even say ladylike, if I didn't know you better. But I hear you've been popping up among the ethnics, eating pierogi and giving speeches. Sensing where Bright was headed, Stella forestalled him with a smile. I am a lady, she responded, who wants to run for a law-and-order job, so I'm changing my name to Duke. Despite himself, Bright laughed. Duke Mars, he mused. How does old Duke feel about the death penalty? Still against, Stella answered crisply. Her distillation of Catholic teaching had its disadvantages, she knew. Among them a stubborn consistency regarding what life meant, that it was sacred for a fetus and even for a murderer. But it's the law in this state, she continued, so I'm bound to apply it fairly and judiciously, which is what I tell people on those grim occasions when they ask. If you run, Bright responded, they'll ask. How do you make a virtue of being a woman, and who votes for you on the East Side? The first question, though the easier, nettled Stella. Since I joined Homicide, she answered, I've put 24 murderers in jail for life and three more on death row. My religious beliefs didn't stop me and neither did my sex. Who's advising you? Dick Feeney, Stella responded, naming a veteran political consultant. Unofficially, I can't pay him yet, but there are other friends I talk to, people who know other people. I've lived here all my life, remember? Bright fell silent. The defensiveness of her tone underscored his silent message. Stella was an amateur. So is Charles Sloan, he observed, and he's got a good ten years on you. Sloane was Bright's first assistant and oldest associate, a veteran black lawyer now positioning himself as Bright's political heir. That's about a thousand church socials, United Way banquets, and speeches to cops just waiting for his time to come. His voice grew soft. Charles is one of my oldest and most loyal friends in public life. And my core constituents in the black community, as loyal as they are, have taken to the idea of an African-American prosecutor. Support a white candidate over Charles, and some will say that I'm not as black as I used to be. We all run those risks, Stella answered, when we cross the Onondaga. Bright looked into her eyes. I need your help, Stella. Campaign for me against Krechek. In Warsaw and on the west side, you've lived there all your life. Talk to your friends. His voice grew soft. I need you, and you need me to win. Suddenly Stella thought, she was not quite such an amateur. And if you do? No promises. But I'll have a better idea how you'd fare in an election. And so were you. This was the most she could expect, Stella knew. A door left ajar, which, if she refused, would be slammed in her face. I won't attack the stadium, she told him. Bright watched her face. I don't need you to. What I need is you telling your friends and neighbors you believe in me. Stella paused for effect, and then gave the answer she had been prepared to give for months. Of course I will she said with a smile. I was just waiting for you to ask. Now, on Sunday, Stella read the police report again. There were no signs of robbery at Tommy Fielding's house or, in the first inspection of the bodies, of violence. It seemed that Fielding had eaten dinner before Welch arrived, leaving remnants of a ham sandwich and a beer. Tina's clothes were carefully folded on a chair and the bedroom lights were low. In the drawer of Fielding's nightstand was a softcore porn magazine, Black Beauties. Tina Welch had been autopsied at once. Coroner Kate Michelli had called Stella with her tentative conclusion that Welch was an addict and had died from a massive overdose. Not that this ruled out murder, Stella reflected, but a double homicide by injection would be quite a complex task. Pensive. Stella studied the work of the crime scene photographer. In their nakedness, as pitiful as the camera was pitiless, Fielding and Welch lay on the bed, Fielding with his eyes shut, Welch staring back at the camera. Welch appeared much older than her 23 years, evidenced by her driver's license. There were bruises of fatigue beneath her eyes, and her body, though slender, lacked muscle tone. Her skin looked ready to collapse upon the bone, the work of drugs and malnutrition. At thirty-four, Fielding looked younger than that, with slicked-back black hair and sculpted features, and his body appeared fit and well-muscled. Her telephone rang. The sound, on a Sunday, startled her. It was Nathaniel Dance, the deep-voiced chief of detectives. I have a homicide, he said. A big one. Reflexively, Stella answered, never rains but it pours. It's Jack Novak. At first, Stella could not speak, but even in her disbelief, her rebellion against what Dance had said, the professional in her understood his call. Does Arthur know? she asked. Not yet. They say he's out campaigning on the way to a debate in your old neighborhood. I've been trying to reach him, but this is a message I can't just leave.